I'm Pastor Michael Ansman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. I'd like to welcome you and to thank you for listening to our Sunday morning sermons. I hope that they're a blessing to you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. Lord God, we come before you this morning. We ask that as we have now heard the reading of your word, I pray that the preaching of your word will bring light. I pray that as I stand up here proclaiming your gospel, that your Holy Spirit will pierce our hearts and will bring conviction, will bring repentance, will bring encouragement, will bring joy. And most of all, an increase in the growth in our love for you and for one another. Amen. So I should, I'd like to begin briefly with saying today is a, a great day. You might be thinking, well, yeah, of course. Well, for me, it's a, a really great day because today marks my four-year anniversary uh, coming here to Zionstone as your pastor. I was called four years ago uh, as I took my first halting steps up the chancel after a week of, of practicing uh, the liturgy with Ray helping me out a lot, and I uh, gave my first uh, service Four years ago today, uh, my wife and I have been very uh, loved here, and our family has been loved here, and so much has happened to us here, and I've grown, hopefully, as your pastor, um, and as a preacher and teacher of God's Word, uh, and I pray that you have grown as well, sitting under that and being a part of that, and uh, so thank all of you for uh, your love and your care and for, and for your call, and it's been interesting to, to walk this process from, from coming in as an interim outside uh, of, of this denomination to come in and be called anyway later on as your, as your full-time pastor, and I'm so grateful for that and thankful for that, and I love you all. That said, okay, so to begin the introduction, I'm going to show you my hands. Pretend we're playing poker, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you my cards in advance, okay? <laughs> because... Today, I'm preaching on a sermon title that is fairly polarizing, so I'm telling you beforehand where we're going, okay? So today, I'm going to be preaching on the church is exclusive, not inclusive. Now, like I said, that's a very polarizing title, but next week, God willing, I will be preaching on the church is inclusive, not exclusive, okay? So I just showed you my hand. I'm telling you where we're going. Next week, we're going to talk about the church being inclusive. This week, we're going to talk about the church being exclusive. Are you all watching with me? Good. I know everybody that's watching here is with me. That's where we are going. So if you start to bristle, take a breath. Like Daniel Tiger says, right? Take a deep breath, nice and slow, and let it go. There you go. All right. But what I hope to do in both sermons is to challenge us as to what our preconceived notions are of inclusivity and exclusivity and hopefully find some space that's more reflective of the biblical witness than the cultural, cultural witness that's unfortunately buried itself in mainline denominations like ours. So when we talk about exclusivity and inclusivity in a Christian way, we often bring into the discussions ideas about God and theologies about God that aren't quite reflective of God's self-revelation to us. For example, Jesus said in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Wow, the wrath of God. We don't like that one. You should read and see this stuff all over the place about why that doesn't mean what that means. 
when we talk about the wrath of God abiding on someone for not believing in the sun, for not seeing life, that doesn't sound fair. That doesn't sound fair. We don't like that. So I'm going to tell you a couple of stories, one of which I discovered recently. Right, the first one's really heavy, and the last one is, is three stories. The first one's heavy, and the other two are fairly light, okay? So we'll do the heavy one first. So a while back, there were 21 prisoners undergoing trial, and these prisoners were sent chaplains to minister to them throughout the process and then as they were awaiting uh, their sentencing. And the chaplain for about a group of 15 of them was a Lutheran pastor. And uh, he said about his work of, of working with them, of, of talking to them, of trying to lead them to a place of remorse and repentance for what they've done. And uh, one of the prisoners, when the Lutheran pastor asked him about the deity of Christ, he made a disparaging comment about Christ. And a few hours later, that prisoner was dead by suicide. How does that make you feel? There are some who criticize that Lutheran pastor for not giving him communion, for withholding communion from that prisoner. And that doesn't sound fair to us. That doesn't sound very inclusive. Right? Why should any spiritual comfort be withheld from those who are about to die? Right? If they're about to die, even if they say terrible things, we need to comfort them in their final moments and give them this to help them along. This pastor said, no. He said, you are not a Christian. And as a Christian pastor, I cannot give you communion. That doesn't sound fair. Now, what might change everything for you is when you find out who that prisoner was. That prisoner was Hermann Goring, one of the architects of the Holocaust. Now that you have that piece of information, the fairness question, the inclusivity question falls on the other side. We go from the one side to the other side. Is there any absolution for monsters? And if so, would that be fair? And I can't remember how many conversations I've seen on the internet of somebody said, well, if Hitler just said the magic Jesus prayer right before he died, he would have gotten into heaven. I'm sorry, that's not how that works, okay? That's not an argument. Out of the prisoners, only six of them were communed. And only after that Lutheran pastor was certain that they had true remorse, true repentance, and embraced Jesus Christ. And that, that remorse and repentance and embrace of Christ was real. And then out of those three, six wound up being executed. Right, because now we have this, this, this not a paradox, but we have this dichotomy, right? Before we found out who this guy is, well, maybe we should have given him communion. Now, on the other side, you're like, no, now you find out about who this guy was. No, we need to definitely exclude him. Inclusion, exclusion. We can sometimes go either way. Now, the second story is much more benign, and I've actually told this story before, so I'm not really going to spend a lot of, of time with it, but I, I had recorded a sermon, and I had played it for some clergy, and in the, story, in the sermon, I, made this, I told a story about a, a, a woman who wanted baptism for her young child. So we got to talking, and I'm like, okay, well, what's your understanding of baptism? Why do you want to be baptized? She didn't want to be baptized, uh, the child to be baptized because she was a Christian 
or was a believer or wanted her child to be brought into the faith, she wanted the child to be baptized to please her parents because her parents said, you need to have this child baptized, you need to have this child baptized, and so to make her parents happy, she was reaching out to people to baptize her baby to keep her parents happy. She was not willing to raise the child in the faith. She was not willing to come to church. She had no interest in the faith whatsoever, all things that came up through our conversation. So what do you think I told the person? I said, no, I excluded. That was not well received. Well, why would you do that? Why would you say no? You don't know where people are on their journey. You should have said yes. And I said, I know where this person was on their journey because they told me where they were. Right? Just because somebody might be seeking, the possibility of seeking is not enough for the Christian initiation. It is not enough to be baptized into Christ. That's not how it works, right? You don't get united into Christ. Your sin's forgiven. Brought into the church to please someone else. Another time I was in conversation with some clergy, and uh, I told them when we have the Eucharist, there are times when there's a lot of visitors. And when there are, and I don't do this often, but when there are times when there are a lot of visitors here, I announce the table is open to everyone. If you are baptized, and if you are self-reflective and repentant, right? If you are a Christian, baptized in the name of the Holy Trinity, you're welcome here at the table. But if you're not a Christian, if you are not a believer, please, thank you so much for being here, but this is not for you. And that, that was met with some incredulity, right? That doesn't seem fair. Why isn't God's table open for all, regardless of their belief? That doesn't sound very inclusive. So let's talk a little bit about exclusivity. The church is exclusive. So we're going to begin with the exclusivity of Christ. John 14, 1 through 7 Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I prepared to go to a place for you? Let's go down to um, verse uh, 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Right, so this text from the Gospel of John comes at a key moment in the life of Jesus. He has just eaten the Passover meal with his disciples. He's mentioned his betrayal and death. He has washed their feet, this act of menial servitude to teach them the type of follower they were to be and the type of service or to offer each other and, and those around them. He is the master. They are his servants. He tells Peter, Peter, you're going to betray, betray me three times. And Peter's like, no, that'll never happen, Jesus. I will never betray you. And Jesus is like, yeah, it's coming, buddy, but it's okay. He opens this, but don't be troubled. And the reason why they should not is that the Father has laid aside these rooms for them. Jesus is going to the Father to prepare this for them. And Thomas asks, how do I get there? What's the way? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that sounds right off the bat to be very exclusive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus didn't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, except until the rise of liberal theology that denies my divinity, denies my miracles, denies my incarnation, miraculous birth, death, and resurrection, because then you'll see that there are many different ways because all paths are leading to the same goal. This is, of course, 
garbage. I've said that before. It is garbage. And it's not respectful of other religions because not all religions believe that we're going towards the same thing. They don't be, all religions have this, and I'm, uh, I I can't remember his name now, but there's a Harvard professor named Stephen Prothero who wrote a wonderful book called God is Not One. And he talks about, he lays out how every religion has its own view of what's wrong with the world and what's the way to fix it and what you're working towards. And it's disrespectful. And it's the height of privilege, I would say, to assume that all religions are trying to do the same thing, to get us to the same place. That's just lazy. St. Theophilac wrote this, I am going to the Father, Jesus said. Follow me, and you all surely ascend to the Father as well. I am the truth, so be assured that I am not deceiving you. Furthermore, I am the life. Not even death can prevent you from reaching the Father. There is no other way to get there except through me. Now remember, a few weeks ago, I preached on rival baptisms. And the reading was from Acts, where St. Paul shares the gospel with the disciples of John the Baptist. And when he found out that they were disciples of John the Baptist, he didn't say, okay, cool, that's kind of pretty close to what we believe. You know, John was Jesus' cousin, and he had some really good things to say about repentance. No, he baptizes them, it says, into Christ. And just before this, there's a man named Apollos who was also baptized by John. He had some knowledge of the way of the Lord. He had to be taken aside by Priscilla and Aquila and taught the gospel. And he became a mighty preacher and speaker, and St. Paul mentions him in Corinthians. And St. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he gets up in front of a massive group of people, and he proclaims, let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. From Acts 4, 10 to 12. Jesus, according to St. Peter, is the cornerstone upon which the entire edifice of God's salvific plan in history, begun in Abraham, has been accomplished. And he contrasts this with their inability to recognize him and calls them to task for their persecution and their killing of him, their execution. And he concludes that salvation is through no one else. Brothers and sisters, if this is not exclusive, I do not know what is. And we should not and we cannot, in the name of inclusivity, pretend that all religions are marching along the beat of the same drum just heard from different areas, or all religions were just all marching up the same mountain just from different sides. God has a very specific plan of salvation as laid out to a specific group of people by which then everyone is brought in. We'll talk about that next week. There's even exclusion within the church community. Right? So what we heard the reading from from St. Paul here in, in 1 Corinthians, he's giving them instructions because food being sacrificed to idols was a big deal. Because when you eat the food sacrificed to idols, you are participating in the worship of those idols. And so St. Paul says, some of you know that Jesus Christ is Lord and these idols have no power and you eat this food that's bought. And and the problem is this food is also sold in the marketplace, right? So so what happens is St. Paul is like, some of you know that Jesus is Lord and these things have no power over you and according to your conscience, it's okay. He's like, but there's other people in the church who don't have that. 
and you can't make them stumble, and you can't be the cause of them leaving and rejecting Christ because the knowledge that you have about something over here. You kind of have to work together. So you have to exclude things that you might want or think are okay in service to your brother and sister. There is exclusion practice in the church. I also want to talk this morning about sacramental exclusion. Earlier in the sermon, I mentioned the sacrament of baptism and the Eucharist, so we're going to expand on the Eucharist a little bit here. When it comes to the sacraments, there is a level of exclusivity present that many don't like. Because the sacraments have been transformed from the material means through which God extends his grace to us into powerless tokens of hospitality, meant to be used to make everyone feel included and to make no one feel rejected. Not only that, but the Eucharist becomes a piece of didactic theater that tries to feed us political ideologies about oppression and justice and radical inclusion, except feeding us on the life-giving, sin-destroying body and blood of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it one more time, because I really like that. The Eucharist has become a piece of didactic theater, trying to feed us political ideology to show us something about oppression, justice, and radical inclusion, except feeding us on the life-giving, sin-destroying body and blood of Jesus Christ. Because we cannot accept the idea of a God that sets limits on us. We cannot accept the idea of a God that commands us to live and act in a certain way. And we cannot accept the idea of a God that would ever, ever tell us no. Because we think we know better than God. We think we can live our lives the way we want to live them and still kind of be a Christian on the side. This is kind of like a cool thing I do on a Sunday. God tells us no. We don't like to hear that. So like Isaac does, when I tell him no, he tries to get out of it by doing something else. It's funny, growing up, you know, my, my dad would say to my sister when we were younger, he'd say, Linda, you know, if I told you not to climb over the fence, you would slide under it. And a lot of us are like that with God and the commandments of Jesus Christ. God tells us no. Because here's the thing, brothers and sisters, God knows what we truly need. God knows our hearts better than we do. And God knows how easy it is for us to turn our hearts to our passions, to our lusts, to our desires. Because he's not trying to keep us from having fun. He's trying to help us become new creation. God tells us no. The church is exclusive. And the sacraments are exclusive because the church is holy. And to be holy is to be sanctified. And to be holy is to be set apart for sacred use. And brothers and sisters, we are sanctified by Christ. That means what we're doing here in our worship is a holy act that we offer up to God. We offer ourselves up, as St. Paul says, as living sacrifices. The church, and this isn't what I'm trying to get to today, but the church is for worship primarily. We, are, we come here to church primarily to worship. Talk about that another time. 
Holiness is a very real thing, and we dare not play with it. In the Old Testament, there are multiple examples of what happens when people take the holiness of God for granted, or they don't take it seriously, and they pay the price. Nadab and Abihu offer up strange incense before the Lord and are destroyed. Uzzah reaches out to grab the Ark of the Covenant when it's being transported and dies. The armies of Israel are told not to go to battle against the Philistines, and they say, no, we can do this. Let's get the Ark. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant. God's going to give us the victory against the Philistines. Guess what happens? Their armies are destroyed, and the Ark of God is captured, and it takes years for the Ark to come back to Jerusalem. When Isaiah sees the Lord in his heavenly vision in Isaiah 6, one of the angels in a prefiguration of the Eucharist, one of the angels grabs a coal off the heavenly altar and he touches it to Isaiah's lips and cleanses his mouth to make it holy because Isaiah is going to speak to an unbelieving people the very word of God. And in the New Testament, because people say, well, God is different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament, we just were looking at him in the wrong way. We know now God would never really do that because Jesus is love and love doesn't, never takes any strong action against anything. But we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. In an effort to gain favor with the, Holy Spirit, with the apostles, because other people were selling land and giving it to the, and the money to the apostles for the care of the church, they're like, this can get us in the good books of St. Peter, so let's do that. So they sell land, they take some of it for themselves, and they give it to him and say, this is all the money we got from our sale, and it laid it before the apostles' feet. And St. Peter says, why did you lie? You didn't lie to me, you lied to God. And uh, Ananias, I think he was first, he falls down dead, and they carry him out. Sapphira comes in, St. Peter's like, hey, did you... Was this all the money from the sale of the land? And Sapphira says, uh, yeah. And St. Peter says something very chilling. The, the feet of the people who carry your husband are here now, and they're going to carry you out, and Sapphira drops dead. I thought the God of the New Testament was soft and fluffy and cuddly, and not like that terrible God of the Old Testament. They lied to the Holy Spirit. My friends, because what is holy is not for those who are not of Christ. Right? What is holy is not for those who are not of Christ. While preparing for this, we're talking about exclusion in, in the Eucharist right now, I came across an article about the Eucharist that's kind of going to demonstrate everything I've been talking about, okay? So the author said this, quote, When a church is committed to the vision of Jesus, the Eucharist can take on a new meaning. It can be seen as a feast of justice, not a sacrament of sacrificial atonement. But this assumes, brothers and sisters, that the vision of Jesus is the work of socioeconomic justice. The author goes on to say uh, a few things. The author says, first, the Eucharist is a meal of liberation, to which I respond, liberation from what going to where? To where? Well, in her point of view, oppression. Right? But oppression can be tailored to suit the situation. How are you defining oppression? Oppression from who? Oppression from what? Second, it's an egalitarian meal. It recalls Jesus' table fellowship with the marginalized and the outcast. At a table where Jesus is the host, everyone is accepted and welcomed. This one is a major point, right? And I even saw on, on social media the other day, a, a, a Catholic monk actually said some of the same thing. Jesus never rejected anybody at his table. You have to be very careful here, brothers and sisters, because in the scriptures... Do we see Jesus eating with tax collectors? And let me tell you, the IRS is high up there for me. Probably for you too. I'm just kidding, IRS, if you watch this. I'm not. I love you. You're my best friend. Jesus ate 
with tax collectors, with sinners, with the outcasts of society. Yes, he went into their homes, he spent time with them, he ate their food, he drank their wine, and he spent time with them. But what does he do, particularly when he goes to Zacchaeus' house? Zacchaeus says, Lord, if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to repay it. I can't remember off the top of my head how many times, multiple times. Three times the amount of what I stole I'm going to give back. And Jesus says, what? Today's salvation has come to this house. But Jesus eating his, these meals and spending time with sinners and tax collectors, yes, this is showing that Jesus is calling all. Because remember, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but the sick. But when the Eucharist is inaugurated by Jesus Christ, did he give it to the tax collectors? Did he give it to the outcasts? Did he give it to the sinners? Well, kind of yes in a sense, right? But he gave it to his who? His disciples. His disciples. And we see even more in the Gospel of John where he washes their feet and he says, serve one another the way that I've served you. I am the master, you are my servants. The way I have served you, serve each other. Jesus inaugurates the Eucharist and the first celebration of the Eucharist after his resurrection, he presides over himself and who is there present at the table? Two of his followers who are walking to Emmaus from Jerusalem who are sad that Jesus was dead and they thought that he was the Messiah. They have an encounter with Jesus as they're walking. They don't just remember him fondly in their hearts and it fills them with joy. Well, Jesus said and did some really wonderful things. Man, maybe we can just carry his torch and, and come on. No. Jesus appears on the road, walks with them, talks with them, shows them in the scriptures who he was, what his point was, how he, why he was supposed to die. Then he comes, and what does he do? He sits among them, he breaks the bread, he gives it to them, he vanishes, and they're like, what the heck just happened? Third, this author says, it's a shared meal for sharing community. The Eucharist is a call to share our food so that no one is hungry. It is a call to share our talents and resources on behalf of those in need. And I would say in response to that, no. It's a call to feed on Christ. But the sharing of food in the early church was always part of it, right? It, what they would do is, is they would have what's called an agape meal because we have to remember when Jesus goes to heaven and he commissions his apostles, he doesn't, all of a sudden, a new religion called Christianity is created and then there's Judaism over here. The early Christians were seen as Jews. So they would still go to the temple to worship on the Sabbath. But then they would still get together in their homes and they would have an agape meal where they would share all of their food with one another so no one was in need. And we see this in the book of Acts. It says everyone shared everything that they had in common with one another. So there was sharing. So no one went hungry. And then they appoint deacons because the apostles are like, look, we are studying, we are in prayer. Christ is teaching, the Holy Spirit is teaching us all this stuff. We need people to help us so no one gets neglected. And that's why they lay their hands on uh, St. Stephen and I think St. Philip. They become deacons and serve in the church and wind up having powerful ministries of their own. The shared meal for sharing community was the agape meal at which the focal point was the Eucharist. This is my body broken for you. And that does build community. That does cause community to unite around our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Fourth, the author says, it's a sample and foretaste of God's reign of love. 
and celebrating the Eucharist, we are anticipating the day when all the world will be fed because of our compassionate actions for greater justice. I would say, yes, the Eucharist is a foretaste of God's reign of love. But it doesn't have anything to do with feeding our work for justice. What it anticipates is the culmination of our union with Christ, the resurrection, right? We see what the Eucharist is pointing to fulfilled in the book of Revelation, when heaven and earth are joined together and everyone is feasting together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in a way, we're, we're feasting there already. And in a way, we're not quite there yet. This is called the eschatological now but not yet. Right? Scripture says, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Right? So Cindy, you, you're sitting here in all the way in the back, socially distanced appropriately, everyone is watching. Even though you're sitting in the bench all the way at the back, right now, physically here in space and time, in Zionstone UCC, St. Paul says in Ephesians that you are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. And those of you who are watching over the internet, you might be sitting at your home, in your pajamas, in your PJs, who knows, maybe in a robe, maybe you're watching on the couch, maybe you haven't washed your hair or even taken a shower yet or eaten breakfast. <laughs> you are seated with Christ in heavenly places, the now and not yet. And the Eucharist is a sign of the now and the yet, yet finally coming together to be fully realized. But here's the thing. Because we feast on Christ, because it is a foretaste of God's, of God's coming kingdom, we can't use the word kingdom, we have to use reign or way, no, but his kingdom, God's coming kingdom, it is a sample of that, it is a foretaste of that, because the kingdom is here and not yet. We're not anticipating our works of compassionate actions for social justice being realized throughout the entire world. Like the, 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 the Anglican bishop, N.T. Wright, he talks about, about how we do not work, he puts it like this, we work along with God, right? God is going to do the work of transforming the world, but we partner with him in doing it. We take part in it, but it's not our work that ultimately changes the world. Now, I'm not saying we don't act for justice, we don't act for peace. I'm going to preach about that another time, okay? But this is not what the Eucharist is. This is why, then, brothers and sisters, the Eucharist and baptism are not just symbols of Jesus that we can take and mold into something to suit our own purposes or use to make statements about unity and togetherness or to foster political agendas. Light and darkness cannot be in fellowship, and those who dwell in darkness cannot approach the table of the Lord and receive. Now, if the Eucharist and baptism are just rote symbols, which for most of church history was something nobody believed. Thanks a lot, Zwingli. My least favorite reformer. Then none of what I just said matters. Do whatever you want with it to make whatever point you want to make about the common human family feasting together. But brothers and sisters, even the feast is for those who accept the invitation to join it. And in stark contrast to what the author wrote, what I just read earlier, the, the late great Methodist theologian Thomas Oden wrote this, and this was just, felt like a slap in the face after reading the stuff that I just said to you today. He says, the celebration is intended for those who having been baptized into the community of faith are thus deliberately seeking the regenerate life and praying for sanctifying grace. Only the penitent are ready for the Lord's table. Only the baptized faithful who have fallen 
have again received the grace of contrition, are ready to share in the Eucharist. That's something wholly different from those things that I just read. It's exclusive. We don't like that. But unfortunately, as we follow Christ, that's the way it is. And the reason why this grates so much against us, brothers and sisters, is, is because in our culture, inclusivity is seen as the highest good. And to be inclusive normally means to embrace and have a place for everyone. And that's, yes, if we're using inclusion in that way, there's a place for everyone. Everyone should be embraced and accepted. I have nothing, I have no problem with that. That's something I can get behind. I'm going to focus more on inclusion next week. Right? This week, the church is exclusive, not inclusive. And then next week, the church is inclusive, not exclusive. What we need to, and I'll talk more about this probably next week too, but when we hear today the word inclusion used, it has a different definition besides we're open and we're welcoming for anyone who wants to join. For nowadays, in our day and time, this is from a scholar named James Lindsay. He wrote this. Inclusion is to create a welcoming environment specifically for groups considered marginalized, and this entails the exclusion of anything that could feel unwelcome to any identity group. This is because everything must be understood in terms of systemic power dynamics. Then he goes on to say that inclusion is an expansive concept that could apply to silencing certain ideas usually in the name of safety and preventing the trauma or violence that ideas can inflict. That's not inclusion. But when you hear the word inclusion today, that is what it is meant, that's what's meant by that. And that is not just out there in the secular world, in academia, that's also very much present in, in modern Christian theology. But brothers and sisters, what results from this is then being unable to say hard things, necessary things, except for saying hard and necessary things against particular perceived systems of societal injustice. No gospel, no call to repentance, no transformation other than working for the good of whoever identifies as marginalized at the expense of everything and everyone else. We'll talk more about that next week. We'll talk more about that next week. But we need to understand, brothers and sisters, that in our quest to be welcome and opening and, and calling all to come to church, right, that the church primarily offers worship and that the church is holy. And the things that we do here are holy. And we cannot mess with that. And we cannot lay that aside to take on the insanity of our cultural moment. Because God is calling us, I think, in a, new, in a different direction, away from that. And so, to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting, and is all holy good and life-giving spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. This is Pastor Mike Lansman, and if you have any questions about anything you heard or would like some more information about our church, feel free to email me, malandsman at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Zion's Stone UCC, or our website, zionstoneucc.com. We have a GoFundMe set up as well for some repairs that we need, gofundme.com slash UCC. 
As we continue to navigate the fallout from the coronavirus, I'd like to thank everyone for their continued generosity. It always amazes me how generous you've been. And I pray that the blessings of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be with you and would keep you.